It's Monday, June 25th, and this is The Daily Dive. When voters head to the poll for the midterm elections, they will be presented with a slew of candidates and propositions. Many factors will need to be considered, and one of the main issues is what politicians plan to do for the opioid crisis. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to discuss her trip to upstate New York, where she talked to voters about the politics of addiction and what really matters to them. AMC Theaters just launched a service to rival MoviePass. This comes with news that MoviePass will also be introducing surge pricing this summer. MoviePass is losing tons of money but still contends that it's right where it wants to be. Journalist Rick Paulus will join us to talk about the controversial business model of MoviePass, and more importantly, what are they doing with your data? Finally, marriage is out of fashion, but jewelry company Tiffany is selling more engagement rings than ever after three years of decline. Suzanne Kapner, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about how being more inclusive and targeting the ever-elusive millennial has turned around their business. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Opioid abuse and addiction can impact anyone, and everyone knows someone who's been impacted. That's why we call it the crisis next door. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. The opioid epidemic is a major problem across the country. Overdoses are rising all across the country. Latest statistics from the CDC say that in 45 states, ER visits for opioid overdoses have risen over 30%. It's just a huge problem, and it crosses over into the political spectrum. The president has said he wants to do something about uh, the opioid epidemic, and it's even getting into smaller races for Congress, for state senators, all over the place. So, Ginger, how is the opioid crisis figuring into politics now? You're right. There are about 100 people dying a day from the opioid epidemic, which is staggering numbers. And we're seeing in places that are particularly hard hit that voters are showing up and they're demanding that candidates answer questions about what they're going to do to stop this overwhelming number of deaths. I traveled to Binghamton, New York. It's a town in upstate New York in the New York 22nd Congressional District, where a Republican incumbent, Claudia Tenney, is facing a challenge from a Democrat, Anthony Brindisi. And they're talking about the epidemic and voters are showing up at their town halls and demanding answers. I was at a town hall in the town of Hamilton, where it was mostly dairy farmers that had a lot of questions about agriculture, about tariffs, about local issues. And they wanted to know what, in that case, the Democrat was going to do to stop this. And when I talk to Democrats, they think that this is a political advantage to them, although they are insistent this shouldn't be a politicized issue. But they argue that their support of the Affordable Care Act, of the expansion of Medicaid, of more access to health care, and investing more money in research and treatment in general means that voters are going to like their answer a lot better. And how are Republicans approaching the crisis? Republicans overwhelmingly across the country are much more likely to defer to enforcement, calling for more punishments, for example, for people who deal fentanyl, which is a very powerful opioid, a painkiller used really to put someone in a coma that's being cut into the heroin to make it stronger. And in some cases, because it is so much stronger, it forms the root cause of some of those opioid deaths. They're calling for stricter punishments for people caught in possession 
of fentanyl. Democrats say you can't arrest your way out of the problem. Republicans say you can't spend your way out of the problem. And they're really at odds about what is the best solution for the epidemic. And this is a key issue all across the country, Florida, Ohio, Kentucky, Pennsylvania. They're all going through this stuff. The House leadership is going to be bringing more than 70 bills to the floor pretty soon that deal with the opioid crisis. And everybody wants to get their name on these as a co-sponsor of these bills, just proving we're doing something. So obviously they're trying to make a point to their constituents that we're going to be the people that can help you through this crisis. That's right. There's a lot of legislation moving uh, through Congress right now, both the House and the Senate side, a number of bills. And you're right. This is so that they can go home to their constituents in August and then October ahead of the election and say, look what I did. Look what the bill I voted on. Um, It's still yet to be clear, though, if that legislation will ever become law and just how much money is going to be there, because treatment costs a lot of money. And that's what we're hearing from local officials when I speak to them about what they need. You said you traveled to Binghamton, uh, New York. Tell us what it looks like there. It is a city that has been going through an economic decline, and then these things, people get addicted in in various different ways, but it kind of shows throughout the city now. It does. This is a city that once was economically booming. IBM worked there, GE. They invented the flight simulator in Binghamton, New York. And all of those jobs and that technology is really gone now. There's very little left. The largest employers are the hospitals and the schools. And the epidemic has really hit there hard. People, many who I talked to, started on prescription painkillers and then switched over. I spent days talking to folks in the grocery stores and the parking lots of Walmarts. And they told me that every one of them basically knew someone who had been hit, a neighbor, a cousin, a coworker. And I didn't know any individual class, the middle class, the upper class, poor people. You could see it on the streets, people clearly using under bridges and on sidewalks, syringes, uh, in abandoned warehouses. It's really touched every corner of that city. The politicians are really thinking that this is a winning issue for them on both sides of the aisle. But voters are very interested in this. And it is they, they have signaled to you that whatever legislation that comes out or somebody that think is going to be tougher on the issue, they will swing their vote that way. That's right. When I talk to voters, and not just in New York, I talk to folks in Indiana, Kentucky, Florida, and people told me that are running for office that nearly every campaign event they have, someone asked them about what they're going to do to stop the opioid epidemic. Voters want answers, and they want to know what solutions these candidates can bring forward. They think the status quo is unacceptable, and they just know too many people who are dying to not do something more aggressive very quickly. Well, we hope that we get some uh, very good bills to help address the crisis. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I definitely go see more movies now, which should hurt MoviePass's business model. But also they want to collect the data. That's sort of like the disconnect that I still can't really figure out. Joining us now is Rick Paulus, a journalist based in the Bay Area. He's written for Vice, among other publications. 
we're going to be talking about movie pass. The movie industry is going through a big change, just like television and cable companies are going through a change. One big reason for this are popular tech disruptors, Netflix on the TV side, and in this particular case, movie pass on the movie industry side. Rick, you had a chance to speak to Ted Farnsworth. He's the head of MoviePass's parent company. And since the news of MoviePass ever came out, everybody right away was like, wow, that is a deal. They charge $9.99 and they let you see any movie you want once a day. Every month you can see a new movie a day. Tell us a little bit more about their business model and how they're really not making much money right now. So that's the biggest question that comes around whenever anyone comes across MoviePass is that there is way more money going out than coming in right now. The question then becomes, where does MoviePass plan on getting the other money from? It's always kind of vague. I mean, the biggest thing is data collection and then yeah. somehow selling, not really selling that data as much as like selling analysis of that data. That's um, what really makes it very interesting. Obviously, everybody's seen and heard the stories about Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And that was all about your data. That's all about the stuff that they're collecting about you. And that's really where they see the biggest moneymaker for them is in the, the data they collect on you and how they're going to use it. This seems more like a Netflix-ish model where like Netflix has access to a lot of data and then they'll know what to produce around that data. And MoviePass seems like it is either going to get in the business of producing its own movies using that data or um, farm out that data to other movie studios as they determine what they want to make in the future. So specifically, what are they doing with it right now? They're telling movie studios what movies you're going to like and most likely to see. How Ted Farnsworth kind of described it was movie studios will come in and say, uh, you know, we have these six movies coming out over the next summer. Can you tell us about what the audience will look like for these six movies? And then from there, the studios will get a better understanding of how to spend their advertising dollars or maybe even hire MoviePass themselves to advertise for them and farm it out, try to drive traffic or drive, you know, audience, I guess, physical traffic to the uh, movie theaters. One of the things that I found that rang totally true in your interview with Ted Farnsworth was that you said uh, one of the experiences you've had using MoviePass is that you have more of a, an appreciation for a movie. You take the ticket cost out of the equation and you're m more likely to like something or enjoy it because you're not spending as much. You don't feel like you're getting ripped off. Totally. Right now, the cost benefit analysis that I have for movies is, is it worth my hour and a half, two hours versus is it worth my hour and a half, two hours plus 15, 14 dollars, depending on the ticket. So I definitely go see more movies now, which should hurt MoviePass's business model. But also they want to collect the data. That's sort of like the disconnect that I still can't really figure right. out. It's a huge benefit for the customer, for the consumer, and it doesn't seem like it is for them. I know they're banking on a big subscription base. Uh, what number of subscribers will they start making money? They actually released a report a few days ago that said they're at around 3 million subscribers, I think. And so Ted Farnsworth said that they need to hit 5 million in order to break even with that. And what do theaters get out of this? They don't really lose any money because MoviePass is paying for these people's tickets when they go in. So some movie, movie theaters will cut a deal with MoviePass for uh, anywhere between 15 and 25% off of the ticket if you're using MoviePass, but they're still getting most of the portion of uh, the regular theater ticket. 
And also they're getting, you know, all of the concessions that are sold, which is kind of where like movie theaters make their biggest margins. Right. And if you're not concerned about money because it's already prepaid or, you know, you have your monthly subscription, you're more likely to get the popcorn and your drinks because you're not spending so much up front anymore. That's the argument. I mean, I'm kind of cheap, so I always smuggle in a burger anyway. <laughs> well, but, um, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what the argument is. And the other thing is, as you were alluding to earlier, is that they're starting to produce some of their own movies or buy into distribution channels. They bought a movie phone so they can suggest, you know, there's more ad space there. So they're expanding beyond the just simple subscribe here and we'll give you tickets to a movie. They're really banking on a future where they're going to be producing movies and and getting into deals with production companies where they can always keep pushing people towards those movies, potentially making more money off of it. That's the most interesting aspect of it to me is that if they own a percentage or the entirety of the movie that they're showing to their MoviePass audience, that means they're not going to be really spending as much money at the ticket sales for the box office because it's just money that's going to go right back in their pocket anyway. Right now, they're buying parts of movies that are already produced. But once they get into like developing their own products like Netflix has done, then right. it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, it definitely has that. And we've seen that with Netflix, all the exclusives, all the originals that they have now. For consumers out there worried, hey, this thing might go away soon because they're losing so much money. How does MoviePass feel about their longevity in this business? They're always pushing uh, that they're, they're going to be just fine. I think that they're going to they're burning through money. But I also I also think that MoviePass is getting enough hype right now that other people, other VCs might swoop in and get involved, too, and kind of keep throwing money at it for a while because they don't want to be left out. As far as the consumer goes, you're paying nine ninety five for a month of movies. If it's worth if that's worth it to you, then do it. And if it's not, then it's not. Rick Paulus, thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you so much. And they've enlisted Elle Fanning to do these digital ads where she dances to a remix of the song Moon River. You know, it's flirty and fun. Joining us now is Suzanne Kapner, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. The U.S. marriage rate is stuck at historic lows right now, but companies, specifically Tiffany and company, have seen a jump in uh, sales of engagement rings, wedding rings. They're doing something a little bit differently with their marketing and their advertisements. What's going that's, on with that's them? That's correct. So for years, if, if you recall seeing Tiffany ads, they focused on, you know, the perfect couple. Often it was a, a Caucasian couple. They were carefully posed in some, you know, moment of marital bliss. And she's usually in a big white wedding dress. It's like the perfect couple, the perfect lifestyle. There's a splash of the Tiffany blue on the page. And, you know, that worked for them for many, many years. But culture evolves. And there have been a lot of changes, you know, same-sex marriage is legal. There, people fall in love today. They don't necessarily get married, but they're still celebrating their union in, in some way. They live together. So the company has a new CEO who um, decided to shake things up a little bit. And, you know, that's a big deal for Tiffany. They're 181 years old. They have done things the same way for a very, very long time and were successful at 
it, but it just wasn't quite resonating anymore. So they created some marketing that showed more same-sex couples, more minority couples, people just celebrating love, the idea of love rather than marriage per se. And it seems to have really worked because their uh, sales of engagement jewelry jumped 11% in the most recent quarter. That's after declining for three straight years. And there was no new product, no new pricing. Like the only thing that had really changed was the marketing. So the company does credit the marketing with making the difference. Yeah. And it's a smart move. I mean, uh, companies constantly have to not necessarily reinvent themselves, but always target that next growing consumer base. And obviously uh, they're going after the, uh, you know, wh who everybody wants to court right now are the millennials as well. Millennials uh, have a lot of student loan debt, things like that. Mm -hmm. So to buy big ticket items like these is kind of a stretch for them sometimes. So still they're trying to change the, the marketing to uh, make things a little more approachable for them. It's true. Millennials tend to be more on a budget. Um, in some ways, that plays to Tiffany's strengths because they do have like a very wide range of prices. I mean, you can buy a pair of silver earrings at Tiffany for $150. That's not nothing. It's not, you know, we're not talking thousands of dollars for fine jewelry. So they're trying to use that to their advantage right now to appeal to millennials that, you know, you don't have to shell out mucho bucks to get something in a Tiffany blue box. Beyond the big items like uh, the wedding rings and stuff, just to buy jewelry for yourself for any time, to wear at any moment. They've taken, with their advertising, it goes beyond just what they've done with the engagement jewelry. They've, they're trying to be a lot more edgier just in their overall marketing. They just launched a new fine jewelry collection called Paper Flowers. And to introduce that, they took over some famous New York landmarks, you know, whether it was some like corner bodegas or New York taxis and painted them in the Tiffany blue, which is, you know, kind of edgy for them, not something they would normally do. Even They even painted the outside of their Fifth Avenue store with blue streaks to make it look like there was like, you know, street art painted on the building. And they even listed Elle Fanning to do these digital ads where she dances to a remix of the song Moon River. I saw um, that. It's, it's a great rapper. ad. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, it's flirty and fun and and not serious and sort of not what you would typically associate with Tiffany. And then they have this uh, thing called the Blue Box Cafe where the right. Tiffany Blue is uh, heavily featured, but it provides customers these highly Instagrammable opportunities for pictures and videos and things like that. You know, and that had been a big debate within the company, like how much should they really use that blue? There is a, a real worry that you don't want to overuse that color because then it becomes sort of oversaturated. It loses its value. And so when they were um, just recently, this past fall, Tiffany was uh, introducing a new fragrance and it was going to be the first fragrance that was sold outside of Tiffany's store. So it was going to be on like 7,000 store shelves around the world and should they use the blue for that box or would it just be like too much they decided to go with the blue because they thought it would help the brand stand out from their competitors but that was something they wrestled with internally whether you know were they going to be overusing that color right it's something it's very smart you always have to reinvent the strategies at least and as you said tiffany is a 181 year old jeweler that they have to change their methods so it's uh it's pretty good to see the turnaround Suzanne Kapner, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.